Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Nicely Entertainment's Scott Kirkpatrick, Propagate Content's Catalina Ramirez-Chavez and Thunderbird Entertainment's Richard Goldsmith about the fast-changing US independent distribution sector. Boone and Murray Productions' Julie Pitsy and Rupert Dobson on the challenges facing Unscripted and RM Vista's Rosemary Vega, Locomotive Global's Sunda Aaron, and BBC Studios' Angie Stevenson on adapting scripted formats The Cleaning Lady, Ray Donovan and Ghosts. With the US in the grip of a writer's strike and studios and streamers alike recalibrating their business models, independent distributors need to remain nimble to keep up with the rapidly changing landscape. Nicely Entertainment Executive Vice President of Distribution and Co-Production Scott Kirkpatrick, Propagate Content Co-Head of International Catalina Ramirez-Chavez and Thunderbird Entertainment President of Global Distribution and Consumer Products Richard Goldsmith spoke to Hayley Babcock at C21's Content LA recently about how their companies are adapting to the shifting domestic and global marketplace. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Hayley Babcock and I've got the pleasure of hosting these really interesting guests today to talk about indie distributors and the path forward and what's happening, what's changing in the market, what it means for these three people and their companies as a you know litmus test for what's happening for everybody, I think. Uh, to begin, let's talk about what this is supposed to be about. It is about where's the money? Where's the money for selling? Where's the money for acquiring product to put into the pipelines? We've got three representatives from three very different, really interesting companies. Scott Kirkpatrick, who's the EVP of distribution at Nicely Entertainment. Then we have Catalina Ramirez Chavez, who's the co-head of international at Propagate. And Mr. Richard Goldsmith, he's the president of global distribution and consumer products at Thunderbird Entertainment. So it's a little bit boring to say that things have been changing dramatically in our market because they've been changing for such a long time. However, it's true. And I would think that it's even more true now with the rider strike going on here in the U.S., There are lots of tectonic shifts going on in the marketplace, and of course, that has an effect on anybody who is selling content, whether you're an original creative producer or you're a distributor. But change is not always a bad thing. It often means opportunity, and so we're here to talk about what those opportunities may be and what those changes are that our panelists have seen and how they're sort of taking advantage of it. We'll be speaking about that and what they're looking for, what they're looking to invest in. And all three of our panelists come from companies that both produce content as well as distribute. So there's going to be some blending of the lines between investment and talking about what they produce originally, but they're all wearing their distribution hats today for the most part for this conversation. So without further ado, um, I would love to start, Richard, with you. What would you say is the core content in your catalog? What defines Thunderbird Entertainment's catalog? Well, Thunderbird is a 20-year-old company, um, public company in Canada and in the U.S. Uh, We have three different pipelines. Uh, The smallest group is Primetime Scripted, where we do drama um, like Reginald the Vampire and uh, comedy like Kim's Convenience. Um, The second group is called Great Pacific Media, which is, in Canada, they say it's factual. I say it's reality content. Um, And the third group is Atomic Cartoons that makes animation. So those are the three buckets of content that we have. And currently, we have about 
30 series in production across the company, and we have 1,400 people making great content. Great. Catalina, same question for you for our audience. Uh, at Propagate Content, we are very focused not only on domestic, but also international. So we all, we'll do all sorts of genres, and we're very genre agnostic. We do documentaries, scripted, unscripted. Um, and I think, as I said, like big part of our focus is always the international business. Uh, it's been a core, like like a fundamental part for its conception. So um, I would say that's pretty much what we do. And also formats are very important for us and for our catalog. And Scott at Nicely. Yeah, so we produce uh, TV movies. We produce about 20 original TV movies every year, primarily Christmas romance films uh, and a lot of female-driven romance films. And uh, we also acquire a lot of third-party uh, uh, TV movies as well. But we're, we also do a couple of scripted series. We do about one scripted series each year since we're three years old. Right. We've got three. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of our core model. We don't really get too into the factual space, uh, but uh, always room for improvement. Right. So now that we've got the baseline, and you can see, as I was saying, it's just very sort of different catalogs, which I think is a really great perspective to have on this panel. Um, as we started out saying, part of what this panel is about is the changes in the market. Scott, what would you say, if you had to kind of focus, are some of the biggest changes that you've seen over the past year or two or three that change the way you're operating? What are some of the biggest changes in the market from your perspective? I mean, first, my view is always change is constant. So it doesn't matter what the year is, you're always going to have to deal with that. Um, I think the big changes going on right now are interest rates. Um, past couple of years, people have gotten very comfortable in funding programming by, you know, debt instruments, and they'll, they'll hold on to payments and financial structures that pay out programming for 8, 12 financial quarters. So when you have heavy interest rates, that can really increase the cost of what a program is actually costing you out of pocket. Um, it's really, really frustrating when broadcasters and other partners are not increasing their license fees to uh, uh, adjust for that. So I would say that's probably the biggest thing is interest rates. Really interesting. And Richard, what would you say? Well, there's just been so many fundamental shifts since the end of last year. Um, with the SVOD, the subscription VOD model, kind of being thrown out the window because of profitability, coupled with the global economies really being down. Um, add to that now the, the strikes that are going to go on here. Um, so we've seen a um, probably, for me at least, the most dramatic decrease since 2008, 2009, since the Great Recession then. That said, uh, we are firm believers that uh, great content will always be in demand and that, um, you know, even if SVOD was supposed to do $50 billion in content this year and it goes to $40 billion, it's still a lot. Yeah. I think the, the greatest area that we've seen affected right away has been animation versus our other two pipelines. Okay. And Catalina, aside from the two things you just heard, is there anything that you've observed, especially, you know, in regard to how you're looking at the market and what you're doing with trying to sell your content? I think I will add to that the fact that I think now the world is more focused on the international market. Like, as we know, like before, it was all about domestic and what was happening here in the U.S. But I think, like, for the past years, we have seen it with the streamers. Like, people can watch shows and formats and everything in, in different languages that are not only English. And they're quite successful. And I think part of that is also the fact that streamers and broadcasters around the world are starting to understand that they can do their own, like they can do their own adaptations to the formats. 
and not necessarily just stick with the tapes sometimes. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty interesting. Like, like if you go, I don't know, to Spain, they prefer to buy the format of a cooking show instead of buying the tape. Or in Latin America, same situation, because it's like you can have 60 episodes instead of 10 because it's, it's better for what they need. So I think it's very interesting to understand the cultures and like trying to understand better the international market. And I think we're getting more and more specialized on that. And I think that's a positive change too. Do, do you think, is it changing? And I know the other two don't really focus on formats in their catalog, so I'm not going to stay on this for very long. But when you're talking about streamers, wanting to do local adaptations of the shows they originate. Is there a way that you are changing your business model so that you can benefit financially from them doing international versions of your original, you know, sale? I know originally they weren't doing that. Is that shifting? I think it's very interesting what we're seeing, for example, in Latin America, because we also have this, this label of Spanish-speaking content there. And I think what we've been hearing and seeing is that usually we think about unscripted formats like all the time, right? But we don't think about the scripted formats. Oh, yeah. And like, how about if you go and see what which are the top shows in, I don't know, like in, in India or like which is how the box office is behaving in those countries and how can you adapt like a format in Korea and easily adapted to a, a, a format not only in the US, but let's think about Latin America, for example. And we've been doing that. We've been finding IP in other regions of the world and being able to adapt it and, and place it culturally but relevant. I guess what I meant was, let's say if Amazon picked up something from you and then Amazon wanted to do Amazon India's version and Amazon you know, Scandinavia's version, are they paying you additional fees for those additional versions or are they just taking the rights once and saying, we can do what we want with it? Well, the way we do it at Propagate, it's we, we get those rights for the format and then we position it in the market. We have two ways of doing it. So it's like, if you have a third party, though, um, for example, we represent some of Fox Entertainment content, uh, uh, shows, the unscripted ones. So if, for example, I have a show like Next Level Chef, I can go and sell it and, you know, like sell the format and find the best broadcaster that will do it in Colombia, let's say. Or if I am like, the other way we do it is like we acquired the format from, let's say, Korea. We, as Propagate Originals, adapted it and then we sell it and okay. we adapted it. I, I have to agree with exactly what you're saying, Catalina, that international is so important. It is a global marketplace uh, for content. The U.S. market has really slowed down. A lot of platforms are on hold or re-looking at their budgets or going through reorgs now. But at the same time, in the last 90 days, we're doing deals in Asia Pacific, Latin America, France, UK, Denmark, Israel. And I just got back from a Europe trip. And even though these economic problems are global, in order to really play in the industry, you have to have a global perspective. Mm -hmm. And it really hedges your bets about where you're going to be able, because you can't count that every market is always going to be healthy. Scott, how does the international market play into your particular kind of content? Because I would imagine a lot of, for example, you were saying there's a lot of Christmas, you know, films in your catalog, but Christmas doesn't play everywhere. 
What is your sort of strategy looking at gl the global marketplace with your particular female skewing, Christmas skewing content? I mean, I think with TV movies, um, they don't perform everywhere. They, I think the U.S. is really one of the main exporters of TV movies. Mm -hmm. um, they perform quite well in Western Europe. A couple of westernized countries like Australia, the English-speaking world, uh, Christmas movies aren't going to play in Southeast Asia or you know Middle East. They don't perform as well in, in certain regions. But I think all the content that we probably work within, no program is truly global. No program works perfectly in every territory. So I think what you have to do is just examine each vertical, work with it, find out where are the most likely places to you know exploit it, and and focus on those. Sorry, didn't actually answer your question. No, what okay. do we do specifically? I think TV movies also used to work with like we would try to like structure output deals with certain countries and use that as part of the financing. That has gone away. That is a big change that's taken place in the past few years. Yeah. Uh, so we've become a lot more focused on making sure that we're profitable in the U.S. or in North America first, and then looking at the rest of the world more as gravy. Icing on the cake, gravy. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, icing on the cake that you have to sort of rely on, too, in some ways. Yeah, understandable. Correct, yeah. So we talked a little bit about the writer strike. You mentioned it as well. Is it an opportunity for distributors like yourselves right now with your ready-made finished content, would you say? I will jump in and say yes. I, like I think in the TV movie space specifically, a lot of these films are quite low budget. Um, they're under a million generally per title. Uh, a lot of them are non-union or, uh, you know, are maybe SAG, but they're not WGA writers. But um, no, it's, it, it is an opportunity if you have a library. And we have to also remember that a lot of major players in the U.S., globally actually, there's been a lot of mergers and acquisitions. There's been a lot of freezes on budgets. There's been a lot of cutbacks on budgets. So I think that there's going to be a pretty big void over the next 6, 18 months. There already was going to be a void in content. Mm -hmm. So with a writer's strike, I think there's going to be even more. So it is an opportunity if you have the library. Richard, same for you? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, given that we're a Canadian company, it hasn't really affected our animation business and our factual business. Uh, we do have a primetime scripted group in LA and everything is pretty well shut down. Strategically, uh, we have a spinoff of Kim's Convenience, which is a new comedy called Strays. Um, we held it back in anticipation of the strike to sell it outside the U.S., so we're just going out now thinking that it's a better time to sell a series like that here because there's demand. And we're just, you know, very hopeful that a fair settlement will be done with, with all of these talents that we work with. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really our main concern. I think everybody's hoping for a fair an equitable settlement for all sides, for sure, because it's our industry, right? It, and a fast one. And a fast one. Um, what other opportunities, besides the, sadly, the one that the writer strike might be presenting to all of you for, for sales into the marketplaces that you sell into, what other opportunities do you see for yourselves in this new world order? Richard, let's start back again with you. Well, as I said, the, you know, um, I joined the company two and a half years ago, and uh, my colleagues were mainly focused on North America, and they did a little bit of distribution, but most of the content that we made were was given to third-party companies to distribute. And my greatest pleasure uh, has been to be able to take the creators that we have in our company and the content that they make and expose it to clients in the 200 countries that we do business in because we make great content and that's the you know the the hub of this entire industry and it's allowed us to have vast resources outside of north america to commission our content so i would say that for us 
you know, that's been, for me at least, it's been the favorite thing that we've been able to accomplish. And, you know, as I said, we now have, you know, we have co-productions going around the world. We have investment around the world. And it really allows a production company as, as ours to control their own destiny. Because if you're selling to a network uh, and they take all rights or you give your rights to a distributor, um, you don't really control anything. Uh, our strategy is to invest in our deficits if there's a deficit, retain as many rights as we can, um, and control our own destiny. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as a production company, it's, 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 a, it's a very, very smart plan. I would imagine, Catalina, you would probably agree with that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are some of the opportunities given your kind of content? Because it, it differs from animation. What do you think those opportunities are now in the marketplace for you? Well, I think we are starting to acquire content based on the regions too. So for example, like we know that there's certain content that let's say works for the region of Latin America and maybe Asia. So we are going to try to acquire that content to specifically focus on those like broadcasters or like buyers are in those territories. So that's I think that's something that we're trying now, and it's been it's been really good. And as I think, opposed to looking with a global filter, yeah, like I mean, we o- we o- we of course always want to do the global fi- filter, but we don't. We also see the big a big value in understanding the mar- the the individual markets or the regional markets, because of course, like sometimes like these are changing times, so we have to get more creative too. And I think that's a great way to do it because if we understand what that region consumes and wants, we can just go and buy specifically represent specific content for that region or regions. Mm-hmm. And Scott, you know, we were talking about fast channels and SVODs and mergers and all of that. Where's the opportunity in those changes, do you think, for you and Nicely and your content? Like, we're companies like ours, we're direct with all the platforms um, and we have very good relationships with all the streamers. Uh, Ten years ago, when I was at Mar Vista, the idea was that you would go into each country and try to find whatever new VOD was popping up there. But what we realized quickly and what we're doing at Nicely is uh, working with the companies here in the States that are already expanding internationally. Netflix did that, Amazon did that, Tubi and Pluto are now doing that. And I think that's sort of an interesting model to follow is to work with that. Um, also, it's it's just sort of understanding that the way things work in North America are a little bit different right now than they are in the rest of the world. I'm really excited about the opportunities of AVOD and where that's going to go. I'm really excited about virtual product placement and integration of ads. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, look, subscription video on demand is a fun idea, but it's a real pain in the ass to, you know, <laughs> have... 10 different accounts and they, they, there's a lot of churn. That's not really a, a easy way to build a business in the sense of, of if you're trying to project out five years in the future, if you can't really guarantee how many subscribers you're gonna have, that's tough. Uh, AVOD is a little bit different, but it's tough right now for I think advertisers to figure out exactly how to monetize or how to calculate what the spend is worth. Mm-hmm. But I think as we get a little bit more, I don't know, savvy about how do you gauge these metrics, And as you look at technologies like virtual product placement, when they can put really seamless advertising into content and the advertisement I see is different than the ones everyone in this room sees, uh, I think that's a really interesting way to fund television and fund media content. And uh, it won't have those jarring ad breaks. So I kind of see that's where things are going to go in the next 10 years. And I think that's really exciting. I see Richard smiling. And yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, he hit all three nails on the head. And, and um, 
you know, the, the, the two areas of our business now that are new and hot for us are fast channels. You and I have talked about this, mm -hmm. right? That um, I think the fast business is fast growing, which is why you see all these crazy metrics about where it's heading. I think that it's really about the, the main problem our industry is discoverability. Like, how do you find a show amongst, like, if you, is anyone has, here has gone on Pluto and seen how much content they have? It's just mind-blowing, right? So it's the same thing with fast channels. So our focus on fast channels is with big brands, like Kim's Convenience or Highway Through Hell, shows that we have that are global and known. The other stuff is kind of getting lost. Um, but it's creating an amazing, like, imagine that you can have your own channel with your own content. That is just great. Um, and right now, we're getting a big share of the revenue, of the ad revenue. The second thing is on AVOD, now we have, you know, 10 platforms in the U.S. that we can sell our content to or give it to them and, and get a rev share on. And um, recently, we have a new kind of hot kid show that we've, in, we've launched around the world. Um, we went to the toy companies and said, look, we can sell it to this platform or this platform in the U.S., or we can put it everywhere. Um, and they were like, this show? Everywhere. So it's going to go on 10 AVOD platforms in the U.S. And, and so not only do we have the upside on the, on the revenue, but we have broad exposure that can drive toy sales. And so, you know, I think that, um, to your point, those are, you know, new areas that have just been out for a couple of years that are really changing our business. Are you concerned at all that there are so many channels now kind of going back to the olden days of linear television that require advertising and there are only a finite amount of advertisers 100%. and a finite amount of advertising revenue? Yes. Or, you know, yeah. advertising spend, let's say? Yeah, I, look. I, How do you think that will shake it, out? First of all, there's a finite amount of advertising that has to be spread across this. We know the metrics where, you know, it's shifting from linear to AVOD. You know, we, we know where the money's going. Plus, the economies are horrible. So the ad money is, is going to go down. Yes, it, I still think, A, it's a hit-driven business, um, and, and if you have a hit network or you have a hit show, you'll make money, and B, you, you just have to have a realistic viewpoint of what the economies are. Okay, so with that filter, each of you in your own way is looking for content to add to your catalogs and to what your production companies put into your pipeline. When you know what these metrics are like, where the money is and isn't, where things are tight, where brand and recognition is important. With all those filters in your head, what is it that you're looking for? If somebody were to come to you and bring you some content, either already finished that needs a distributor or an original idea that maybe your production arm would produce, in either of those you know, scenarios, what would you like, if in your perfect scenario, what would you be looking for? What's your filter when you're willing to have a conversation about maybe taking something on and adding to your catalog. Catalina? Uh, for us, we're always trying to look for like very culturally relevant uh, like topics or situations or, you know, like conversations. We don't go too much on the niche side. Uh, that's not something we do. We want to always find a way that, yes, if we tell like a very local story, it can have a global approach and it's, it's accessible for public anywhere in the world. So that's kind of like what we're looking for. We do a lot on the unscripted, of course, and it's a big part of our business. So we documentaries, docu-series, yes. 
anything that has to do with true crime, you know, like in, in the scripted space, I think we're very genre agnostic, as I said, but it's very important for us to understand the trends and like the, we're very into the pop culture too. And like this sort of genres that can easily translate into, into like many, like as many people as possible. So that's kind the of- broad broadest possible like, audience. Yes. Yeah. Scott, what about for you? And your company. Yeah. Um, so our CEO and founder, Vanessa Shapiro, she, she describes us as boutique. We, we focus on very specific things. Mm-hmm. We want a Christmas romance. We want a, I call it like summer escapism romance, where it's like some, some girl falls in love with a royal, secret royal in a <laughs> fancy resort. And then occasionally we do like lifetime-y thrillers. So it's, mm-hmm. it's very like clear-cut, inspirational, female-driven content. Um, and it's cozy. So it either fits that bucket or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, we just have to look the other way. It's very nice to have a clear filter. And when somebody's coming to you, it's nice that they know what your filter is. So Absolutely. Are, I, I don't try to get like, you know, we're, we're not trend chasers. Right. We're very much just like, does it work or not? Right. Richard, what about for you? Well, I want to comment on just one thing before I, I answer that question, which is what you said before about all these platforms and AVOD. Um, I also believe that there's too many platforms both on the SVOD side and the AVOD side, and that there will be great consolidation over the next two years. Mm-hmm. Um, You've already here first, folks. Yeah, and I, <laughs> and I think that, you know, Disney made the first bold move by announcing that they're going to combine Hulu with Disney Plus and their, their other. So I think that that will be the trend. On the acquisition side, right now, um, the only group of the three that we have that we're really focused on acquisitions is kids' content. And uh, what we're looking for are series that, because our animation company produces some of the most popular shows in the world, like Amazing Spidey and Coco Melon and things like that, we can't walk in with something that wouldn't be, as we say, atomic-like, like our company. So what we're looking for are high-end series that we can build as global brands. Yeah, that consumer product Correct. aspect of your business gives you like an extra filter, Correct. isn't it? Correct. And um, I have advertised, which I stopped doing for a year, um, telling producers, we're open, we're acquiring, if you want us to invest in your productions, come to us. And we found nothing. That all the series that we're acquiring now were brought to us by our biggest clients, by um, BBC and Sky and CBC in Canada, um, by the platforms we sell to. And our clients know that we can come in if they love a show and invest in the deficit and acquire the worldwide distribution and CP rights. And, and that's what our plan is. Scott, where do you look or how, how does your acquisitions process work at Nicely? Look, we're pretty open in terms of where content originates. Um, I think probably for any of our companies, it's probably the same deal. It's like, if you're hitting the buckets, we'll look at it because it helps us. Um, do you go I, hunting or do you wait for people to come to you? We definitely hunt, but you know, there's a lot of opportunity. When, when you have, I think, a decent enough brand out there, people do seek you out too, yeah. when, when you're very targeted and clear. Yeah. Um, but I think, and I'm, I'm sure this is probably true for the two of you as well, like if something has some attachment to it or there's already some energy to the product, has momentum already, that's definitely a lot more appealing. Okay. Same, Catalina, you're shaking your head. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think, I mean, obviously there are like major selling points and different things like, you know, like if you're selling a movie or a series, like who the director is, the showrunner, talent, obviously all those things are very important. But yeah, I think we're, we're, we're hunters and we also like want to 
like get content too. So I think it's a very open situation. Yeah. Well, there's something I'd like to ask you about in, in, with that in mind. Many of you may have read recently that Propagate announced a $50 million development fund, which is significant investment in, in creating or acquiring new content. What, if any, role does that play for your business with your, again, with your distribution hat on? Or does it? We are, yes, it does. Like, we're we're on the hunt of, like, premium docs. Like, we want to do the best-in-class documentaries and docu-series. And I think part of that, it's also, like, of course, part of the distribution as well. And we want to be able to go and look at that and, like, be able to distribute it as well. So it, it's a big part of... So can you... Would you deficit finance something if you need, it needed to get over the line if you thought it was right for you? Would you be using the fund for something like that? Uh, yeah, of course. Like, if it, if it meant to be in our catalog and if, if we agree and if, and if it's premium enough for us, we, mm -hmm. will, we will do it, yeah. Great. Are you focused on selling all rights by territory or direct to local outlets? All rights by territory or direct to specific outlets? I think I'll start by Go who's ahead. paying the most and how much are you giving up? I, okay. Look, I think these negotiations, especially in the international space, it's some territories are just all rights territories. Yeah. You just take the money, they have a deal, and, and they exploit it much better regionally than I certainly could or, or I think most distributors. And then others, it makes more sense to sort of layer out and window out the rights and just be smart about your cash. I would guess everybody's answer is the same, but what do you have to say? I mean, for me, it depends. Like, I think every product can have a very, every show or movie can have a different distribution path depending on what it is. So if it's, if you have like a very our house movie, maybe going to a festival first and putting it in an A-list festival and then going to all right spires makes more sense instead of just putting it in a broadcast, like local broadcaster. But if you have a TV show or if you're selling a factual docu-series, might be better to just go to the local broadcaster and just, you know, like positioning there. So I think it depends a little bit on, I will add to that, like it depends a little bit on that. Richard, what would you say? Yeah, uh, uh, generally, we go market by market and we meet with everyone that we should meet with and see what cards we have in our hands. Um, traditionally, um, we're a TV producer, so we're, we're usually launch, um, licensing our rights to television networks. We try to give them as few rights as possible. <laughs> um, generally, they'll want all television rights. We're fine with that. Um, we will always retain consumer products rights. We will always retain the right to have our own YouTube, TikTok, and social media content in the market, even if we're sharing it with them because we can't rely on all these platforms around the world to build the brands like we do. You want to be able to drive that even if they are participating Correct. in it financially. Correct. And we also retain home entertainment rights. So some countries still sell DVDs, believe it or not. Really? Um, we sell downloads and, and transactional VOD. So those are, the, those are the buckets of rights that we usually will not allow a television platform to have. Scott, you wanted to say something? No, I was just going to add to that, that mm -hmm. the three of us are selling very different products in the market yes. and uh, the way TVs are, TV movies are put out there versus television programming, factual versus scripted, uh, there's sort of a little secret sauce for each. I think that's great. I mean, that's what makes this panel so interesting to me that you're all coming from unique perspectives based on the content that you're selling. Um, then a uh, next question, how aggressively, are, and this may not be so interesting for you, Scott, how aggressively are documentaries selling domestically and internationally and what genre is selling the best and, well, what price point is most profitable? Catalina, I'm going to have to toss this one to you. True crime. <laughs> it always is so well, like you always sell it very well. Like I think it's one of those things that 
my mom can watch it. Uh, you guys can watch it. Everybody can relate. And I think if as premium as possible, the better. Because it will it would allow it to get better pricing and you can position it in, in a big streamer or the big platforms or local broadcasters in each territory. Uh, but adding to that, I think sports are great. Uh, sports are always required. Music, as long as like very mainstream, like about big artists or people can relate to people that know. Uh, and I would say those are like the three big buckets that we've been seeing a lot um, and work very well. Nothing too niche or too Americanized. I think because, yes, it might work for domestic, but once you take it out, people are not going to know what you're talking about or might be too local for the U.S. So I think that's also important to keep in mind. With a true crime premium documentary that isn't too local, what would you say just briefly sort of would constitute premium? What, what's the kind of measuring stick that you use to call it premium and globally interesting enough? Well, I think it depends on the way it's been produced and done. So it's like if it, it, it has like a very curated narrative, uh, the production value, it's pretty high and you can tell from, from the quality of it. And sometimes a director, it's known and that would allow you a better sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, like, I, I just think and in, in, in just the story, the way it is approached, usually a premium doc is not more than four episodes, five episodes. And I think all of you have seen that, for example, a lot in Netflix, which are pretty there I have a lot of really good true true crime there that I love. So I think that's a great example of a lot of those that you can find. Showtime is also great doing them. And we did we did sold them a few years ago. We were selling um, docu-series and factuals for Showtime. And uh, we, we were seeing they were selling quite well because okay. it's a very translatable thing. Um, one last question that came up here that I think goes to Scott and Catalina more than to you, Richard, because you already spoke about this coming from a Canadian company. But does the WGA strike, the writer strike, affect your acquisitions strategy at all right now for either of you on the scripted side? Scott? Uh, I'd say yes. I mean, I think that, uh, how do I say this? Like, it's, it, it, we don't know how long this is going to drag out. And uh, seeing the 2007 and 8 strike, and I mean, that lasted quite a while, and it mm-hmm. had a fundamental change on what programming was produced in the years that followed. And uh, I call it reality too, Richard. It's, uh, that really is where reality TV came from. And today with the streamers, it's a very, very different marketplace. So yes, I think we are changing our acquisition strategy because we are sort of gaming out what studios and streamers and other broadcasters might be prepping for. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't been buying as much in the past few years, and I think that they, I, I, like I said earlier, I do see a void coming. And yes, we're prepping our, we're changing our strategy, anticipating a change on theirs. Okay. Richard, go ahead. I, I can also just add that the major platforms in the U.S. have been very vocal over the last four or five months that they really want big brands. Um, you know, so if you can bring them something that's existing, then that's what they're looking for because they're very nervous about the media business now. And so I see that that is one like very major trend that's happening uh, coming to you know producers that own you know either movie or book or other content that people know that they can make into series, Mm -hmm. more so than original ideas. Okay. Agree, yeah. 
Um, we only have a few seconds left, so I would just like to give each of you the opportunity to say, look, let's assume that in our audience we have either people who are buying content from distributors to put on their channels or platforms, or we have producers and creatives who maybe are looking to sell their content or get a distributor on board for their content. Is there any message you have for either of those two audience members that you'd like to get across that we haven't touched on yet. Richard, do you want to start? And we'll go to Catalina and then Scott. Uh, if you don't know the distribution business and you want to work with a distributor, I suggest you have someone to just advise you um, because uh, you need to be protected about um, who's, you know, you're the parents. We're like the uncles and aunts when we get involved in your content. Um, and you need to have a deal that your baby is well taken care of and you're going to get paid. Um, I think for me it's very important to always tell this because I also produce and it's very important that we understand since the conception, who are you making this for? Like who's going to watch it and have that very clear since the moment the idea comes. And then you have a clear path where you want to place it and who is going to be your audience. Yeah, my view is actually to piggyback off what you said. I'm, I'm a big believer in reverse engineering everything. Uh, I think a lot of screenwriting talks about you have to know what page 100 the last page is going to be so you know where to start. And I think you have to think about media the same way. You have to know exactly where it's going to go, who your audience is going to be, because that dictates what pricing looks like. That dictates what kind of project you need to create and just kind of work all the way backwards so that you know exactly how to game it from the very beginning. And that way you can talk intelligently about money and everything else. And I think that makes good sense. And, and you know, when we are talking to distribution companies like these three, we're talking to people who are selling that content outside of the borders of the country in which they are based. So you've also, I think, got to know whether, like to Catalina's point earlier, is it super focused on just North America, just the United States, just your territory, or is it a viable enough story, a broad enough story, a relatable enough story for the broader world that a distributor would be interested in it? that there is an audience outside of your home territory for it. I think that's, you know, an added filter to what you were saying. Know your audience. And is it global or is it not global? Well, I want to say thank you all so much. You've been really great, really interesting. Thank you all for being here. We thank really you. appreciate it. Factual producers in the US have been on a roller coaster ride over the last 18 months following the Warner Brothers Discovery merger, which has led to a slowdown in overall buying. The flux has meant unscripted prodcos must be nimbler than ever as they compete for a smaller number of overall commissions. Despite the obvious challenges, Banerjee owned Boone and Murray Productions has landed green lights for Vanderpump Villa with Hulu, I Survived Bear Grylls at TBS, and The Family Stallone starring Sylvester Stallone at Paramount Plus, in addition to continuing to build out its long running and pioneering competition franchise, The Challenge. It's also producing a reality competition series based on the 2019 comedy feature Buddy Games for CBS. President Julie Pitsy and Executive Vice President of Development Rupert Dobson spoke with Jordan Pinto about the state of the commissioning landscape in the US, building unscripted franchises in the streaming era, and whether the ongoing writer's strike will mean additional orders for factual prodcos. Julie and Rupert, thank you very much for joining me. 
Hello. Thank you for having us. <laughs> um, okay, let, let's talk, um, start by talking a bit, um, just we'll start broadly by thinking about um, Bunim Murray's business today and what are some of the business priorities um, in May of 2023? Um, Bunim Murray um, this year, we've been, um, we've been finalizing and editing our, um, all of the content that we sold last year and shot at the, at the end of 2022. So we have a lot of new releases this year, which we're really excited about, a lot of new formats um, with great pieces of talent. So I think in terms of like new shows, we probably have more this year than we've had in several years. Um, and then of course we have a lot of returning series um, with sort of the challenge explosion where we've been doing a lot of the, that franchise, both for CBS and Paramount, which includes MTV as well. Um, and then, um, you know, 2023 is really about hoping for new commissions and really trying to find a market for all of our new development, which can be challenging. Um, okay, that's a good maybe segue um, for you, Rupert. Um, yeah, can you tell me a bit about the, the development slate and some of the key titles you have coming up? And if there are development shows that you can't talk about, um, maybe announced shows that, uh, that you are looking toward? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, the holy grail for any development team is developing an original potential franchise, um, and that's become increasingly challenging over the last few years in terms of launching something that's completely new, not necessarily attached to IP. Um, we've got, in, in the IP space, uh, Buddy Games. That's launching this year with CBS, and that was based on a movie by Josh Duhamel. Um, and it was something that he kind of did with his friends off screen, decided that it would make a really good movie, and then at the same time was like, this could make a really good unscripted kind of action style competition show. So we developed that with him and CBS across quite a long period of time. I mean, it was like a year, maybe nearly two years. <laughs> um, and then finally, we went into production on it last year. We've just finished editing it, so we'll be launching later in the year. Mm -hmm. TBD, yeah. strike permitting. Right. Um, the, the, it's interesting, the, the idea of um, you know, an unscripted series that's based on a, on a scripted movie. Um, is that kind of a one-off? You know, that's what this project called for? Or is that something you, that you would be looking to do again? I mean, I think it's sort of very much kind of where development and buying is at the moment in terms of attaching to any kind of existing IP or talent is a lot it's a lot easier for the buyer to make the jump there than just say a paper format that was just someone's idea um, so I think it, we've seen a lot of the things we're having success with are either based on IP or have quite large scale talent attached to things like the Stallones um, series it's I like, survived Bear Grylls. I survived Bear Grylls. Yeah, and it's like the bar for that talent seems to be getting higher and higher. Like a few years ago, if you'd appeared on a couple of shows, you might be able to sell another show. And and now people are really looking to kind of A-list talent to launch unscripted shows. Um, and the level in which the talent has been involved in all of our new series is like they are involved creatively. They are on camera. They really are showing up. They're doing the publicity like. It's, it's a pretty big commitment from talent right now, um, and that sort of resonates with the buyers. So like Josh was involved in the creative of Buddy Games. He was out in the field, he hosted it, he tested all the games, um, and he was definitely involved in the editorial process. And I would say the same with Bear Grylls, um, and even um, Sylvester Stallone with the Stallone series. Yeah. 
like very, very involved. Mm -hmm. Am I right in thinking that that was the first unscripted series that Sylvester Stallone had done? Or yeah. Done? yeah. In yeah. fact, he, um, I believe Tulsa King was the first TV show he's right. ever done. Uh -huh. So like he jumped in big time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, how many, and it, I know these things can be hard to quantify, do you know, do you know roughly how many shows you have on the go at, at currently or at, at any one time um, at, at the moment? Like 13, 14 shows right now, um, but we did 27 shows last year. So, you know, in terms of our company and the size of our company, you know, we generally put out anywhere between um, 18 and 30 shows a year um, in order to, um, to be successful. Yeah. Um, has that remained kind of constant? Is, is, is that the kind of sweet spot roughly for, for you guys? Or have you been increasing it slightly as the years have, have gone by? Actually, I, I think we have been increasing it, but also orders are getting smaller. So there was a time when we would have, um, you know, series that would be 20 episodes, 26 episodes. And we find now most new series start between 8 and 10 episodes maximum. So a lot of shows um, that we've done in the past would just like scope out a lot longer. So they would almost like from a financial standpoint count as multiple series. Mm -hmm. um, whereas now like we have a lot of short orders that are like sometimes four episodes. Um, I think there's like obviously less risk in some of the shorter, um, some of the shorter shows mm -hmm. um, episodically. But I also feel like it's harder for um, viewers to get really addicted mm -hmm. when they only have four hours to sort of fall in love. Um, 2022 uh, last year was quite the year in the U.S. unscripted market. Um, you know, a lot of consolidation led to a lot of the networks, um, you know, putting a pause or kind of re rethinking and re-strategizing, um, and that meant a downturn in the number of overall commissions. And certainly, last year there was a lot of talk of you know when this all shakes out, um, you know, finding out what things look like in 2023. Now that we're here. Um, are we any closer to things having shaken out <laughs> as people thought they would, or are we still kind of bang, bang in the middle of, of the disruption and the, and the shift? I'm going to just say overall, the depression in the market still exists. There's far less buying happening now than it was happening. Like in 2022, all of that was sort of happening in terms of consolidation at the studio and network level, but it wasn't really impacting sort of the producing of shows and even the sales. Like most of what we sold continued to go into production. I feel like this year, yeah. and, and Rupert can speak more to it, there's a much more depressed market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think everyone thought last year was the tough year. And actually, looking back on it, it, it feels like it was a pretty good year sales-wise and production-wise. This year, there's been a real slowdown. So I think seeing way less confidence from the buyers and way less money from the buyers. So conversations with the buyers are starting with a budget number mm. where they never used to. It used to be, we'll figure the money out afterwards, see what, we'll see if we like the idea. Now it's kind of, can you bring this in under a million dollars? Because if you can't, there's not much point in continuing the conversation. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on the buyers right now to keep you know, the budgets really lean. Mm -hmm. And I think that risk aversion is kind of goes back to attaching big talent, mm -hmm. attaching IP. It's rolling the dice on a completely new idea is something that's way less appealing, I think, to the buyers now. Mm -hmm. um, and even the streamers, the spigot has kind of turned off. It's like they're not just buying stuff and putting it up and seeing what, seeing what works. They're being a little bit more selective. Mm -hmm. So we're definitely seeing that from the buyers. We're out pitching kind of every week, 
but we're seeing all the stuff moving way, way slower, mm. or incremental steps, you know, a little bit of casting, maybe some writing, but it, going straight to series is, is something that's, does that happen anymore? <laughs> if yeah. you've got a massive piece of talent and it's like a docu. Mm-hmm. It's true. I mean, even within our development team, like we've been really developing great material this year, great projects, and a lot. And I almost feel like our volume is more than the buyers can absorb. Like we're almost yeah. like, wow, maybe we should pull it back a little bit. Let's hold some of these ideas until there's a little bit more opportunity in the market mm-hmm. instead of burning them off. Yeah. Um, Rupert, what you were saying there about you know maybe buyers, the discussion would be that um, that you know if you can't make this for less than a million dollars, then you know we're, we're not going to be able to proceed. How how is that? Dynamic also working with the idea that more, you know, increasingly they're asking for talent to be involved, and obviously talent in, involved it means an increase in the, in, you know, in the budgets as well. Like, is it is it a, a tricky balancing act, or do they see things as like one or the other? You you've either got your talent. Are there like two lanes? Yeah. Now? Um, I mean, I think in the past, you know, just sprinkling a little talent as an EP might be enough to get a sale, but now, like Julie was saying, you know this. The talent that we do have involved in shows, they're in the show all the way through the show, they're promoting the show, they're absolutely baked in. So I think the buyers, although obviously it costs a bit of money to get that talent on board. But they still need to work that into the budget. So even in the the projects that we've had bigger talent, the budget still has to house that at an attractive number. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so we... we still need to be really frugal in terms of how we make the show and that's kind of where we're really w- well placed because we're good at bringing things in on a, on a, at a price point mm-hmm. and we're known in the industry for that and we've really leaned into that in our development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, w- one of the interesting projects that you have uh, done recently was the Vanessa Hudgens, um, uh, it was a movie with, uh, with Tubi. Have you, I was, I was thinking this to myself, have you done many any you know, many films like you know feature length kind of um, project in the Unimary past. Unimary has okay. um, our this development team that we have right now. This was kind of like the first one that we did like this, where it was like all hands on deck, and it was really taking a project that we were really passionate about and just producing it on our own and selling it after the fact. But Unimary has done that a few times. We had um, you know Autism the Musical and Valentine Road a lot of sort of award-winning documentaries that came out of more of John Murray and Sasha Alpert's sort of a docs division. Um, and those are, you know, sh- films that we funded and then sold to mostly HBO. They were our biggest buyer in terms of those documentaries. One thing, if you, you know, walk anywhere, walk or drive anywhere in LA at the moment, uh, you cannot avoid is the writer's strike. Um, thinking about the writer's strike 15 years ago, um, I think it's fair to say that there were there were quite a few additional um, unscripted commissions as, as a result of the strike. Uh, fast forward 15 years, uh, depending on who you ask, you will either hear that it's not going to make a, a, a huge impact, especially in the short term, um, for the unscripted industry. But then, you know, some people I speak to say, well, you know, kind of something along the lines of get ready for a ton of unscripted shows. Um, from the Bune and Murray side, what, what, are, what are you guys seeing um, right now? I think there already are a lot of unscripted shows. The market is already saturated. If you go back to 2008, there were far few, fewer um, unscripted shows in the marketplace, so it was an opportunity to maybe lean into that. Now, I think that there's as much unscripted as there is scripted, so 
um, I don't, we don't really see that it will, um, that the writer's strike will sort of create any kind of surge of unscripted. Um, I think there's a lot of unscripted that is um, on the shelf and ready to, you know, launch um, just by the nature of last year's buying frenzy. But, um, but we're not anticipating, nor have we seen anything um, from our buying partners that would insinuate that there would be some boom for us. Yeah, yeah it, it's interesting actually, because I think when, when um, the heads of the studios and the streamers have said they've got a lot of content in the can, people assume that it's only scripted that they're talking about, but mm -hmm. I kind of get the sense that it's also unscripted, they, they have a, you know, they have a, a a ton of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, as we said, we've produced over 100 hours this year that, ha well, in 2022 into 2023 that has not yet aired. Mm -hmm. So us as an individual um, production studio, the fact that we have that much that's already been delivered and not aired, and you, you know, multiply that by all the production companies, there's probably quite a bit of content that has yet to air. Um, Rupert, just on the on the development front, are there any new areas that um, Buna Murray is looking at? I know you've pretty much done everything over the course <laughs> over the course of the of the kind of history of the company. But are there any like new areas or um, kind of you know, very very new things that you're experimenting with at the moment? I mean, I think you know it's it's always the challenge to be kind of uh, to see into the future and see what people are going to be buying and what they're going to be watching, wanting to watch in a year, because that's sort of when that show will probably end up airing. Um, so really it's about covering our bases. We've got, we've got a pretty robust team who develop across pretty much every genre. So we, we do a lot of docu, obviously it's something that we've been known for. Um, physical game, dating, kind of classic house reality. I mean, the great thing for us is that those, those are really evergreen genres that seem to, they continue to be popular. People are still buying them, people are still watching them. So we kind of just lean, we're leaning into that um, in terms of our development. Mm -hmm. um, obviously the, the challenge is kind of a, uh, you know, it's a, a pioneering show. I mean, I think a lot of the elements in the challenge, because I, Julie, for, for an interview we were doing, this was like, I don't know, six or eight months ago, I, was, I went on kind of a challenge binge, binge of some, <laughs> some of the older episodes. And, um, you know, some of the way the, the, the physical challenges that the contestants are put under, um, I think a lot of that is what, you're, what I, I've been seeing anyway, maybe in some of the trends in the commissioning space today with, you know, things like the Squid Game, um, you know, the reality series, and just some of the slightly... I don't know. I feel like they're they're kind of really putting putting the um, contestants kind of through it again in a way that maybe five years ago wasn't really part of the um, mm -hmm. the unscripted discussion. I don't know. Have you guys have you guys noticed that as well in terms of like the the, the buying appetite? Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of sort of more derivative projects coming out of the challenge, like where you know certain. I mean, it. We always look at the challenges. It's sort of magic in the bottle because it's incredible storytelling. It's long-time relationships that sort of play out season after season. And then you have really dynamic, exciting challenges. And I think a lot of other um, buyers are sort of seeing some of those pieces and being like, oh, we can use, you know, like characters that already know each other in the series. Or let's go on like a, you know, a road trip or do something in this location. Like, I feel like a lot is being borrowed from the challenge right now. Um, and we didn't see it that much before, but I feel like this year there's some popping up that we're like, oh yeah, that's very similar. Mm -hmm. uh, no greater compliment, I guess. I know. I mean, <laughs> listen, we we recognize that like it works, it really does, and that's why we are now going into our 39th season mm -hmm. um, because the formula really works. Yeah. Um, 
is scripted ever anything that you would dabble in? Or look, I know this is not an ideal time to be asking about you know, <laughs> doing scripted, but is, is it ever part of the future roadmap? Or? We have two projects right now that are hybrid. So they are sort of unscripted with scripted. Um, both are on, in, on the market right now. Um, we're, we're setting them for sale. So we'll see. I think that we always look at scripted as something like we have such admiration for um, for writers and like the level in which scripted is at right now, it's so compelling. So, and we know what we're good at. So we always look at scripted, like how, how does Buna Murray lend to a scripted project? And I think it's either we do a scripted show about an unscripted world, um, meaning another show like, you know, The Office, for example, is a great um, example of like, like a world that was scripted but really was based on unscripted television. Or, we basically create some sort of hybrid. Mm -hmm. So that's what we've been really playing in. Um, and we'll see, mm -hmm. we'll see. It's definitely interesting. And I think part of it is that we're trying to sort of like stir up the genre a little bit and, and really look at like, what can we do as Buna Murray and what is, what are audiences um, kind of craving or what could surprise an audience right now? Mm -hmm. There's so much competition in the marketplace. So you do really have to work hard to create something unique. Yeah. Um, just going back to a, a, another strike question, um, do you see, obviously, you know, there's a lot of talent involved in, in some of the shows that you produce and just across the, um, the US industry. Um, talent either in solidarity with the writers or because of, you know, because of you know, writing or other reasons that they, they aren't able to do that can kind of get caught in, um, in not being able to participate in certain things. Do you see your pipeline as being disrupted at all, um, even you know five percent amount or, or more than that? There's uh, absolutely the um, potential for that happening. Um, you know, we work with again, we work with writers, we work with SAG-AFTRA, we work with the DGA. So there's always the potential that um, that the strike could impact some of our returning series. Mm -hmm. Does that impact how you think about development or? Is, is that not really a way you can approach things? Is that kind of almost counterintuitive? No, we don't generally, because this is just new and our development is six months forward. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we are, I guess now we could certainly start looking at, you know, is there something, are there projects that we could be pitching that couldn't be impacted? But it's not really how we work our development. You know, we generally look at ideas first and if that requires, you know, sag after, then so be it. U.S. crime drama The Cleaning Lady began life as Argentinian series La Chica Calimpia before being licensed as a format by Los Angeles-based distributor RM Vista to Fox, where it's now on its third season. Showtime's Ray Donovan, meanwhile, became Rana Naidu when Netflix India greenlit a Hindi-language adaptation via Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment subsidiary Locomotive Global. And BBC Comedy Ghosts is coming to a close with a fifth and final season, but a US version from CBS lives on with a third, while both shows continue to air for fans on either side of the Atlantic. RM Vista president and founder Rosemarie Vega, Locomotive Global managing partner Sunda Aaron, and BBC Studios Los Angeles senior vice president of scripted development Angie Stevenson spoke to Dynamic Television president of global scripted TV Carrie Stein at C21's Content LA recently about their creative and business approaches to adapting these shows and others. We have three fabulous panellists here, and this is a really exciting session. Um, I can say that because I've learned so much talking to the three of you. Um, we're going to jump right in. I think the way I'd like to start 
if each of you could just very briefly tell the company and your mandate, um, that would be great. Rosemary? Hi, I'm Rosemary Vega. My company's name is RMB Star, and um, my mandate is to introduce international formats um, to the global market. Perfect. Sunder. Hi, Sundar Aaron. company is called Locomotive Global. We're based in India, and we're trying to make global quality content, uh, primarily scripted content in India. Hi, I'm Angie Stevenson. I work for BBC Studios uh, Los Angeles, and our mandate is to develop and produce scripted programming aimed primarily at American buyers, uh, with American creatives, and we develop originals and also adaptations. Perfect. Um, what I love about th these three um, executives, they are each involved in very successful format adaptations. Um, Rosemary brought the cleaning lady to Fox. Sunder brought Ray Donovan to India. And Angie brought Ghosts to CBS, Call Me Cat to Fox, and Welcome to Flatch to Fox, which is just a huge success story. So Rosemary, I'm gonna start with you. Tell us when you got involved in the original The Cleaning Lady. La Chica Que Limpia was a um, finished series in Cordoba, Argentina that was introduced to me as finished product to sell. And I immediately recognized that the power of the series was not only the crime element, but the fact that this woman was forced to do something. And that's where the motto of the series comes to life, which is what a woman would do for a child. And when you understand that, it's a, domestic, it's a universal theme that is global and, and everyone knows a cleaning lady. You don't know why she's doing that job. And so that's what I wanted to get across. And so you got involved in that project to sell the original series globally. That's right. That's going back to 2015. And, um, and I said, yes, I'm very interested. In I'll do what I can to sell the original series, which was made with very little money for 13 episodes. I said, but what you have here are characters that can live for a very long time. Did you immediately think that this would make a great adaptation for the U.S. market, or were you first focused on just selling it globally? From the get-go, it was, I understood, having worked with Law & Order, having worked with CSI, having uh, my last corporate position being at HBO, I recognized that the story matters, the characters matter, and that's what I saw this. I just, to me, it was a passion to get this series to, done in different countries, um, in different languages. So how long did it take to sell this and get it on the air in the U.S. market? It took a long time. Patience is golden. Um, it took about five years. And you told me on the phone that you got about 100 passes. Oh, I was, everyone passed. Everyone passed. But I, I'm of the belief that if they close the door, you'll open a window. And um, I, just, I just so much believed in, my, in this content that I felt that I had to find a way to make it happen. So it was picked up first with um, Turner on, um, in Mexico, and it was done there for Latin America, and then it aired on HBO. It launched with HBO Latin America, and then came the, in the meantime, the, the English language version was being developed at Warner Brothers. I just thought it was so interesting. You know, we only pay attention sometimes when a show is on the air and very successful. 
and um, I spoke with Rosemary, and then I spoke with Ron Lesham, who was the creator of Euphoria, and they both were telling me just how many people passed in this market before they got someone to say yes, and I think it's something um, worth remembering, that when you believe in something, uh, as long as you're being smart about it and smart about the market, that you got to just keep plugging along, and eventually, hopefully, you find that one person that says yes. Um, Don't give up. Yeah. You just have to be completely tenacious in your efforts. And know your, know your client. Was the original show a hit in its local territory? It was um, actually not um, picked up for linear television, but it was picked up on SBOT, and then it was a massive hit. And so that was really, really interesting because um, it gave me the numbers to prove to them that this is something that people will see. And it was only one season, the original, the correct? It was only one season. And, um, and in Mexico, they had 15 episodes, and now we're entering our third season in, on Fox. What was the budget of the original? In total, um, <laughs> not a lot of money. Um, less than half a million dollars. Half a million dollars. For 13 episodes. For 13 episodes. Bravo. Well done. Thank you. So, Sunder, you did the opposite. I did the you, opposite. You took a U.S. show that was on the air for seven seasons, I believe, on Showtime. How many episodes? Well, they had 12 episodes for the first few seasons. <clears throat> I'm not sure about the last few seasons, if they stuck with 12. But, yeah. of course, they dropped Ray Donovan once a week. And in India, our show dropped altogether on Netflix. So, a little bit different dynamic. So what was it about Ray Donovan that made you want to bring it to the Indian market? That's a great question. I think that, you know, we, as we all are producers, or many producers here, looking for interesting formats, some just stick out. And for me, uh, Ray Donovan really popped for a couple reasons. India has a lot of, we all have, uh, lay importance on family, but especially in India, stories that in involve family are very resonant. And then, of course, crime and thriller as a genre in India is very, very popular, especially with, on the streamers. <clears throat> so you see Ray Donovan, and, and uh, if you guys remember the story, the original story, it's about a, a guy who's a tough guy in Boston who moves his whole family to Hollywood. So it was very easy to look at the fish out of water thing and think about, hey, why don't I bring a South Indian character up to Bombay and Bollywood. So it was pretty easy to see the similarities there and it just, it just fit perfectly, yeah. Was Netflix always your target or did you assume you would pitch to the various platforms? Yeah, actually, I, I, I don't know if I would say, looking back, that Netflix was a specifically only target, but it was the first uh, platform that we spoke to and they, we had packaged it actually with a couple pretty um, big Indian, South Indian stars, and also with a, with a showrunner that was already very successful in India. I think that's one of the big issues in India, is being confident about execution. We're still, I'd say, in a, in a developing television market in some ways. Uh, this kind of premium scripted drama has only been around for about five, six years. So that was the secret sauce, I think, our, our showrunner that really pulled it all together. So Netflix was in pretty quickly from the start. How many episodes do you do? Ten episodes. Again, <clears throat> you know, I think that um, 
uh, Ray Donovan obviously by that time was several years old. So we just had to update the way, and we were dropping it again all at once instead of on a weekly basis. So we had to shorten the episodes a bit and tighten up the, the writing for the Indian audience. So 10 episodes. And season two actually is going to be shorter, eight episodes and 45 minutes each because in India and probably for all of us, the audience is getting a little bit more. They've just got too much choice. And so the sweet spot in India right now for OTT projects is eight episodes. 40 to 45 minutes. Right. Sunder, what would you say are the big differences between Ray Donovan on Showtime and Ron and I do on Netflix? Well, uh, aside from shortening the number of episodes in season one, it really is an adaptation. I mean, if you have seen or are a fan of the original series and then you compare it to ours, ours is probably a bit darker. But beyond that, the characterizations are, are still very uh, you know, true to the original format. All right, Angie, over to you. So just so you guys know, I've known Angie for a long time, and we were just reminiscing, you know, when she moved over here to join BBC Studios. It didn't happen all at once, did it? <laughs> it's really exciting for me to just see your slate today and know what that trajectory was. That's great, thank you. No, it didn't happen overnight, and there were lots of rejections and lots of hard work. Um, and certainly, you know, we're thrilled with Ghosts, obviously. And we've also got some brilliant partners on that title, of course. We've got Lionsgate Television, we've got CBSP, CBS Network, who have been unfailingly brilliant at working with us to bring that over to a whole new audience in America. What was it about Ghosts in the UK version that made you think this would be um, a good adaptation for the US market? I think as an original comedy in the UK, it's really quite unusual because it has a large cast. Uh, they all have individual backstories, the ghosts, uh, which is something that I think offers lots of engagement points for the audience. But also, for those of you who know the show, it features a young couple who inherit a decrepit house, which unbeknownst to them is haunted by a number of ghosts. And I think that thematically, it's a comedy, but it does deal with some big issues, life and death, immortality, um, the, you know, the death that we all face and what happens afterwards, as well as love and relationships and evolution of people and character. And the ghosts are all trapped because they need to evolve and to learn life lessons. And so there's lots and lots, I think, uh, for an audience to engage with it. Is there anything significantly different creatively in the US version? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are a number of things. I mean, obviously one huge thing is that a UK season is six episodes and an American season on CBS, our first was 18, our second season was 22 episodes. So obviously in terms of storytelling and story engines, we need a lot, lot more for the American version. And this particular format, we were able to take the British ghosts and Joe Port and Joe Wiseman, who are our brilliant showrunners, they came up with American ghosts who really represent different aspects of American history. There's, you know, our wonderful Alberta, Danielle Pinnock, who is, 
you know, an, a, a, a jazz singer from the jazz age, and we have a revolutionary uh, uh, captain, you know, so we, we have our Wolf of Wall Street. So we have lots and lots of different uh, elements of the American experience, I think, that are bound up in that show. And of course, all of those are completely original. They don't feature in the British version. Um, what we started to realize is that there were fans for the British version and also fans for the American version and that they were talking on social media um, and it became quite apparent that some people were really enjoying both versions of the show, which was really interesting for us as a, a sort of evolution in, in making adaptations and engaging with the audience with adaptations. And Angie, I guess we should talk about Call Me Cat and Welcome to Flash, both of which are comedies. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's very much a business that we're in. Um, I think traditionally there was a view that comedy doesn't travel as well. I do think that that's changing. I think that we're in a global market, and I think that there's much, much more opportunity for comedy than perhaps there was in the past. Um, and so for us, we have definitely found that the um, ideas and the shows that are created in the UK, uh, such as Miranda, which became Call Me Cat, and uh, This Country, which became Welcome to Flatch on Fox, they definitely have enough creative juice in them to be very attractive, I think, to um, American creatives as well as American buyers. And it's just, it's an enjoyable process to see a show that's very beautifully made in its, in its original iteration, and then to think of how you can insert yourself into that show and allow those characters to evolve and to have a new and different life. Um, and on Welcome to Flatch, for example, Paul Feig directs that, Jenny Bix writes, you know, and um, I actually went over with Paul and Jenny to the Cotswolds in England to meet the British creators and we had lunch with them in the countryside and the British show is an homage to uh, the British countryside and life in a small British town and actually Paul and Jenny both come from small towns in the Midwest and they wanted to reflect and pay homage to American small town life and that's really the history of Flatch. Um, this question's for any of you. Um, when you're selling a format, you know, you can't just send a trailer and an episode. You actually have to reconceive what that format will be for the market that you are targeting. Is that right? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, you have to, uh, certainly in our case, we have to completely reconceptualize and make sure it works for an Indian audience. Sensibilities, story, characters location, everything, uh, totally reconceptualize it and can be convincing and compelling when we're sitting in front of a Netflix, Amazon, etc. For sure, yeah. And, and that's why I said it's like a real adaptation uh, in that regard. And I, I, to his point, um, the cleaning lady does exactly that. It offers them a venue to adapt it to their own culture. I said the cleaning lady cannot, is different in every country, in every culture. And some, they wear uniforms and some they don't. And so it's very important that they take it and they make it their own because it, it brings up issues of migration, politics, corruption, and a lot of women issues. 
Yeah, and we find exactly the same. We, d we develop a fully worked up pitch uh, with uh, an American showrunner typically, and we, don't, we can't rely on the format to sell itself because very often, even if buyers love the original, they really do need a take to respond to. So it's very important. And when we do pitch, we're not always certain that they've seen the format. <laughs> we, we don't rely right. on it. Right, good point. Um, I wanna move into the business side with this question for Sunder. Congrats on the show. Is the series on Netflix globally or just in India? Is it available to acquire, license outside India? Uh, it is globally available. Thankfully, we, we had great partners in CBS and uh, who allowed us the, allowed Netflix to take it global. Uh, but uh, if you're interested, you'll have to speak with Roxanne at CBS for the format, for the original format. Yeah, I, you know, in talking to each of you, what, what strikes me as interesting, Ray Donovan ended its run on Showtime in 2022, and you launched on Netflix globally in 2023. Yeah, but we, I mean, it was, uh, we started in 2020. We closed the deal with Netflix in 2020, and then, of course, we're interrupted by the pandemic. So um, I think they returned. I think uh, Ray returned for a seventh season. There was a bit of a gap in there. Uh, but I think, generally speaking, most of the studios want to hold their formats, not make them available until the show's finished its run. Yeah. Right, and Angie Ghost is a very unusual story, one that I don't think we would have been able to um, fathom five years ago because, as you told me, um, it's still running in the UK. Yeah, when we, when we um, made the sale to CBS, it was still very much a live returning series on BBC, BBC One in the UK. So that was another kind of evolution in our business, that we're not just dealing with um, the library, you know, or the archive, that we're dealing with living real shows. And actually, our US version was acquired by BBC in the UK, and people on BBC iPlayer watch both versions. So they sit side by side and actually complement each other. So, so, sorry, does the English version now feed off of the, some ideas from the U.S. version? Not so We've got far. got a lot of episodes. <laughs> they have a smaller, they have a lot shorter run than the, than the U.S. version does. But it's not impossible. Well, I just love that HBO Max bought the U.K. version and the BBC bought the U.S. version. I mean, you know, that's, that's kind of crazy. And they're both existing and they both have fans and they're on the air at the same time. So... Um, that's our time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for being guys. a great audience. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.